0: I can now jump into the audience and give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss, I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big powerful men down there. I won't love it, but I'll kiss <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This will not stand, this oppression against Kuwait. Uh, that You didn't build that. I know the human being. And fish can coexist peacefully. You smell what Barack has cooked. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Whiskey that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. Government is the problem. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You think? And my vice president has shot someone. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. Man, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, if you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for, or you want to help support the work they're doing, then please visit T E A oggn. dot org. Again, that is Tango Echo Alpha Oscar Golf Golf November. Dot org. There'll be a link in the show notes, and I can tell you that these guys are incredibly passionate about the work they're doing to promote and protect American energy. So please check them out. Please sign up for the newsletter. And um, they're doing a lot of good work, and it helped both them and this podcast out. if you go uh, check them out. All right, welcome to the program, "My Huddled Masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive five-foot six ATM of reckless opinion. Back for episode two. And uh, yeah, here we are. They're still letting me do this thing, at least for a little while longer. So grab yourself a cup of coffee. Let's get into it. So there are a couple of headlines I pulled that I thought were interesting. Now, the whole German coal mine thing, the Iranian oil export uh, increasing uh, despite the fact there's no nuclear deal. John Kerry telling uh, uh, the Associated Press that he really backs the UAE oil executive that's been appointed laughably to the uh, UN Climate Council for the COP28. Uh, the fact – That the head of an oil company has been assigned to that is funny. It just objectively is. The fact that John Kerry, of all people, is defending this person's appointment is even more hilarious. I mean, I just don't even have a word for it. What are the odds? What are the odds? Uh, Of all the people on the planet, you know, what next? Is Bernie Sanders going to get up there and start pimping this guy? I don't know, but it sounds delightful. Anyway, but the real thing tonight that I actually wanted to kind of deep dive on that kind of really caught my attention was this FSO Saffir crisis. Uh, So if you don't know anything about this, let me kind of bring you up to speed a little bit. So the FSO Saffir is an oil tanker. uh, Well, it was once an oil tanker. It's been converted to a floating storage facility that is currently moored. Uh, outside of uh, Yemen. I also have a port in Yemen a couple of miles off the coast, about five miles or so. And the Saffir is something that has been sitting derelict for its 2023, so eight years now it's been sitting derelict. And uh, n- needless to say, the maintenance on it has come to a stop. There's barely any crew on it. The thing's about to fall apart and or explode. And this is a bit of a problem because it's got a wicked lot of fuel on board, a uh, wicked lot of Uh, crude oil. And when I say a wicked lot, I mean to the tune of 1.14 million barrels, which is more than four times the amount that the Exxon Valdez dumped up in Alaska back in 89. So obviously, if this thing does uh, fall apart or cause a massive oil spill or explode, it's going to be a big, hairy deal. And that is truly not a good thing. We don't want that. On the other hand, there's also a Greenpeace petition, which is, to put it mildly, rather accusatory. Now, I'll be honest. I always thought of Greenpeace as kind of an um, environmental concern, that they were real big on protecting the planet and all of that. And it all seemed fine on paper. I, I never really thought of them as a political movement or having any sort of socio-political leanings and... You know, realistically, it's my belief that the words socialist and communist and fascist and all that it gets thrown around way, way too liberally these days. I mean, we call everybody that for anything, and um, I, you know, honestly, I think that's part of the problem. I think we we use too harsh of language on things sometimes, and the words lose their meaning. That being said, if you go to the Greenpeace website and you look at their declaration of intent and what they publicly put on their website is what they're wanting, it is a full on. I mean, socialist revolution. Like it's it's a big hairy deal. I was I was astounded. Uh, I did not realize that was avowedly what they were publicly putting out there. But um, turns out it just is. But anyway, staying on point here, the FSO for situation. So they've got a petition, and I'm just going to read you a few excerpts from this petition because I think it's relevant into what I'm going to talk about this evening. And yeah, I know I say evening because that's when I record, but it could be any time when you're listening to this. So just just humor me. Okay, so this petition, governments have finally pledged enough money for the United Nations to cover the $75 million needed to transfer the toxic cargo of 1.14 million barrels of oil from the abandoned FSO Saffir tanker, a ticking time bomb threatening the people of Yemen and the fragile Red Sea. Now, that's true. It's relief that the UN can start operations to avert this environmental humanitarian catastrophe, but let's not forget that the government's money is the people's money. And the reality is that, once again, we, the people, are paying for the oil industry's mess. Now, the problem with this sentence is, aside from the fact it's a run-on sentence, the first half of it, I'm with you. Yeah. This is a humanitarian catastrophe, and it's a good thing that we could potentially avert this, and we should absolutely do that. And yes, I, of all people, being a small libertarian, do believe that the government's money is the people's money, and we probably spend it way too damn recklessly. Then you have that comma and the rest of the sentence, we the people are paying for the oil industry's mess. Now, I'm going to get into this here in a little bit in painstaking depth, but this is not the fault of the people that they're about to say is the fault of. You could say, yes, the oil industry in the sense that the nationalized oil companies of Yemen are ultimately to blame for this. But that's not really where the next paragraph goes. The next paragraph begins with ExxonMobil, OMV, Occidental and Total Energies, and others have announced record profits for the past two quarters, uh, for the first two quarters of this year. This was written um, last year. And yet none of them have provided funds to enact the UN salvage plan. Not technically true. At least one or two of those has, by the way. Uh, These oil companies have a moral responsibility to fund the operation to protect the people of Yemen and the Red Sea that they put at risk by exploiting Yemen's oil resources for many years, utilizing the FSO SAFER. They must be held accountable for any potential humanitarian and environmental impact from the FSO SAFER. Uh, we want international oil companies to foot the bill. The financial weight of oil pollution should be carried by the polluters, not the people. Tell the oil companies that polluters must pay, not the people. Sign the petition today. Now, here's a problem with this. First off, oh God, where do I even start at this point? So should the polluters pay the bill in a perfect world? Yeah, they absolutely should. I'm a big believer in you punish the person who commits the crime, not just everybody else that happens to be around. The problem with this is it's not the oil companies, or at least not like the ones they're naming, that are the issue here. Now, are we all ultimately going to want to solve this problem to prevent this accident? The answer to that is yes. And I just gave you the short answer, and I'm about to give you the really long one. But the bottom line is, yeah, we all should be pulling it together to take care of this. But this is not the fault of ExxonMobil. It's not the fault of OMV or Occidental or Total Energies or uh, the one they didn't name here that they probably should have is Hunt Energy. Also not their fault. But yet they're going after the folks with the pockets that are in the private sector and not the government of Yemen, who is ultimately the person I would say should be blamed for this. And now I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to tell you why by basically going through four questions. Question one is, what the hell is actually going on here? Question two is, how the fuck did we get here? And question three, how big a deal is this really? And lastly, where do we go from here? What do we do? Okay, question one. What the hell is actually going on? So here's the deal. There is a ship docked there uh, that was built in 76, the Saffir, and it was parked uh, 4.3 miles off the coast of Yemen in 87. Uh, ultimately, it came under the ownership of the Yemen Oil and Gas Company, who's its last owners, through a subsidy, uh, which are nationalized. Uh, is the nationalized oil and gas company of Yemen. They're the ones who own this boat. Uh, The boat itself, I say boat, I guess ship is probably the technical term, Uh, hashtag nautical parlance, at any rate, the ship can hold up to 3 million barrels of crude, and it's currently holding 1.14 million barrels of crude, which has a street value of $80 million, uh, which is a lot of money. It's a nice bit of jingle. Now, currently, the thing has been sitting unmaintained since Houthi forces took control of the coast uh, where this thing is docked in 2015. The boilers on board ran out of fuel in 2017, which means that there is no power to pump out the water um, in the bilge, nor is there any power to pump in, inerting gases, which keep the hybrid stable and from uh, bursting into flames or exploding as easily. Okay, so that's that's what's going on. Because there's no money and no people with experience within the Yemeni's government, because there's effectively no Yemeni's government right now, this thing's just sitting there waiting to have a catastrophe. And yeah, it'll be a big deal if and when it happens. So the, the next question is, how the fuck did we get here? And I'm going to answer that with a history lesson, which you should come to expect from this podcast. So let's begin. Yemen was originally a territory in the Ottoman Empire. Um, of course, as we all know, the Ottoman Empire lost World War I and uh, many of its over—well, uh, not overseas, but many of its territories—were seized by the victors and partitioned off into protectorates or UN mandates that would be administered by the countries that won the war until such time as they were deemed to be self-governing. Um, some other famous mandates include Jordan, um, tch, 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 Israel, uh, and a few others. Uh, Yemen is obviously on that list as well. Okay, so the British have it. Now, the problem is when the British get it, they have uh, sort of a, a laissez-faire attitude towards about half the company, the southern half of the, uh, company, the country. And they have a they have a real strong interest in South Yemen because the southern part of the territory of Yemen is along the coast, and Britain was a maritime power and a major one. And that coastline is at the access point to the Red Sea, which is a really strategically important waterway. On the other hand, North Yemen was a bunch of deserts that the, Britain, the British Empire didn't really care about, And they didn't want to get bogged down with all that noise. So they did the only logical thing and said, well, we're going to take half this mandate. We're going to run south Yemen. The northern half of the country, we're just going to split off and make it its own nation. And just that's their problem. They can deal with it. And that's what they did. So that's when you have the kingdom of Yemen exist, which is basically the northern part of Yemen. And the Brits rule the southern part of Yemen as a protectorate. And this works more or less just fine for a couple of decades. Fast forward to 1962, and you have Nasser in Egypt uh, do his thing where he uh, seizes control of the, of the country and starts nationalizing things like the Suez Canal. Uh, Britain and a few others tried to fight a rather abortive little war to sort of stop him, but that didn't really work out, and it got walked back almost instantly. Needless to say, Nasser became a very common name in Arabic countries uh, in honor of this man, and two, it was a bit of an inspiration to some folks in the Kingdom of Yemen. Those folks rose up and overthrew the kingdom government and installed a quote-unquote democratic government and renamed the country from the Kingdom of Yemen to the, uh, what do they call it, the Arab Republic, the Yemen Arab Republic, and this happened in '62. Now, keep in mind, you got the Cold War happening at about the same, well, throughout this whole time. And there was a huge amount of really hardcore socialist and communist ideals that were starting to sprout. And that's kind of part of where Nasser came from, and and that was you know happening in Yemen as well. In South Yemen, there was a revolt against British rule by this hardline, you know Marxist socialist. Uh, Organization, which eventually booted the Brits out, and they established a southern Yemen nation, which they named the Democratic People's Republic of Yemen. Which we all know, anytime you have to call something the People's Democratic Republic, it's uh, none of those things, right? There's at least three inherent lies in that name, and there's only five words, so you know, one of those is of. So not good. Uh, At any rate, you've got two kingdoms. You've got the Democratic People's Republic of Yemen and you've got the uh, Yemen Arab Republic, and they just sort of have to exist with each other. Now, they don't have a necessarily peaceful coexistence for most of that time. They have a couple of border wars, uh, but nobody really gets involved, and and I know this is glossing over it into the people of Yemen. It was probably a much bigger deal, but from a global perspective, it was just a little border war between North Yemen and South Yemen, and it, it didn't really have a lot of ramifications at that time. Moving on, you get to 1983. 1983, you have Hunt Oil Company of Dallas, Texas, and they are out there doing exploration, and they discover that there is crude in the Marab Desert, and so they team up with Exxon Mobil to build a pipeline for the Marab Desert to the coast, where they're going to set up a transfer point to offload the crude and get it out of there. They make a deal with the Yemeni government that they get to operate uh, these oil fields, and um, it's all going to go just swimmingly, right? Now, about the same time, North Yemen and South Yemen both wanted access to the profits and the benefits of this new oil discovery. And as separate countries, this proved rather problematic in a lot of ways. And so what ended up happening is the discovery of this oil patch actually brought the two nations together. They ultimately began talks to, to merge the countries. And in 1990, they did exactly that. The uh, Arab uh, Republic of Yemen and the Democratic People's Republic of Yemen ceased to exist. And they were merged together as one country, the Republic of Yemen. So the irony here is that uh, an oil company actually managed to come in here and bring two countries together and get them reunited. You don't really read that in the uh, Greenpeace literature, do you? Huh. Interesting. Oh, well. I'm sure they'll add it in the addendum. Either way, Hunt Oil has been given a 15-year contract to operate this oil field. Yippee. Things are going fairly well, but in 1996, you may recall there was a pretty deep socialist vein in at least one of these Yemenese countries prior to the unification, and that erupted in 1996 with Yemen deciding to nationalize its oil industry. That means the Yemen Oil and Gas Company became an apparatus of the state rather than an independent or private company. Uh, now ultimately this didn't change things too much. The economy was still going good, things were still going relatively decently in Yemen, and Hunt oil was still operating uh, per their contract, all these oil fields, as well as this transfer point. Now, this is where the ship, the Sapphour, comes into play. When Hunt came in there in the 80s, they got ExxonMobil to build this pipeline to get the oil from the fields to the coast, but then they at the coast they needed a place to store the oil, right? They needed in a repository, well, they only had a 15-year contract, so Hunt wasn't going to spend the hundred million dollars to build a massive uh, oil uh, storage facility because they had no idea if their contract would get renewed. So they made the economic decision to create a floating storage apparatus out of an existing to-be decommissioned oil tanker. The one they picked was the Esso Japan. It had its engines removed effectively, and it was. Uh, converted to a floating oil storage facility and brought out there and moored off the coast of Yemen at one of their main ports. And I would tell you the name of the port, but it's, it's an Arabic name. And even though I'm half Palestinian, my Arabic is really terrible as my family will tell you. So I'm not even going to try. Anyway, this thing was named the Saffir and it's moored out there to act as a transfer point. Great. Hunt Oil owns it and that's all just fine. Which, again, the irony that Hunt Oil is not even listed on this thing with Greenpeace, ah, there's just so many things, so many things. But carrying on, let's just plow forward. So, in 2000, uh, Hunt Oil's contract came to an end, but the Yemeni government was not ready to take over actual operations of this oil producing mechanism. And so the the company, Hunt Oil, was given a five-year extension on their contract to continue to operate. Okay, cool. So in 2005, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2005 Hunt Oil's contract runs out and it's not renewed. It's not extended. The Yemenis say, we got this. It's all ours. Well, Hunt Oil said, okay, fine, we're out of here. Um, they sold off the Saffir to the Yemenese Oil Company. They sold off the Saffir to the Yemenese Oil Company, uh, and they got out of town. And that's all just fine and dandy. So now at this point, to be clear, the Saffir is owned by the Yemenese Oil Company, uh, the Yemen Oil and Gas Company. That is who owns it, and that's really important if you're Greenpeace. That's a, that's that's kind of an important piece of information to have. Okay, now Yemen at the time decided that they needed to build an actual proper on-land transfer point, uh, so they weren't relying on this kind of 40-year-old ship or, you know, 35-year-old ship at the time to hold this stuff, and they started working on it. Well, come 2011, you have the Arab Spring sweep across that part of the world. And various different countries were were having all kinds of uprisings and revolts about the economy, about government transparency, about uh, individual representation with their governments. And um you know there's still you know, there were changes that happened in several major, you know Arabic nations. I mean, Jordan became a little bit more liberal. You've got uh, Gaddafi was flat out overthrown. Um, and you had revolts in several of the Arabic countries. I mean, that's even how you start to get some of the changes that happened in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, and you still see some of the ripple effects from that in Iran today. At any rate, the way this congealed in Oman was hmm, not great. Let's put it that way. Uh, I say Oman. That's incorrect. I meant, uh, I meant Yemen. So Yemen at the time, had what was considered to be a fairly high amount of corruption. They also had a fairly uh, high amount of government spending. Uh, Like a lot of those countries, they spent a lot on entitlements and welfare and all of that, and ultimately it was heavily mismanaged, not to mention there was a staggering to the tune of billions and billions of dollars being embezzled out of the system, as best as anyone can tell. At any rate, uh, Yemen racked up a sizable amount of national debt, And uh, they started running out of of financial institutions that were willing to foot the bill and loan them money to keep going. And ultimately, the only place that would even entertain having a conversation with them about it was the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. But the IMF would not lend them money unless certain conditions were met, like massively scaling down the amount of government spending that they were doing. And one of the specific things the IMF insisted on was ending the rather generous, uh, fuel subsidies for their population. This caused fuel prices to increase by over 100%, and couple this with the Arab Spring riots that were happening throughout the Middle East, and you have the Houthi rebels show up. The Houthi rebels ostensibly were against government corruption. They were against... uh, Uh, Graft, and they were against, uh, you know, anything involving their government, you know, doing what they considered selling out to Western powers. And they very aggressively uh, started pushing back on that during these protests. And the situation was a little dodgy. So by 2012, the only solution that anyone could come up with was a coalition government where they allowed some power sharing with these Houthi rebels. Now, the Houthi have an interesting relationship with Iran. Uh, publicly, everyone denies that Iran is actually directing what the Houthi movement is doing. Uh, they deny that they supply weapons to them. They deny, Iran does, that they they are really all that directly involved. The strongest language that Khamenei has has put out there is that they're spiritually our brothers and we support what they're doing. That being said, we've found proof and evidence that the the Houthi rebels have been armed by Iran and they've been getting weapons from North Korea as well. And while I don't think there's evidence necessarily yet that proves Iran is actively telling them what to do, it's pretty much all but assumed. Um, And this causes complications because with this being an Iranian-backed organization, uh, this is an issue with Saudi Arabia, which is one of our biggest allies – And we'll talk about that later. Uh, But Saudi Arabia has a very contentious relationship with Iran, and they have a bit of a Cold War happening in the Middle East where they are trying to stymie any of Iran's uh, gaining of influence. So seeing an Iranian-backed Houthi rebel group getting a power-sharing arrangement in Yemen was a bit of a problem for them because they saw that as Yemen possibly becoming an Iranian proxy state if things went too far. At any rate, this power-sharing arrangement did not last long. By 2014, it falls apart. The Houthi rebels feel that uh, the government's not doing enough or not doing the things they want. They're not solving things to their satisfaction, and they full-on storm the capital, get rid of most of the government institutions, replace it with a revolutionary council, and declare the constitution is, uh, is no longer a thing right? They, they cancel the Constitution, they seize control of the government, and they install themselves a revolutionary council. Guess who else has a revolutionary council? That's right, Iran. What are the odds? Now, if you want to get an idea for whether or not we think the, the you know, what the diplomatic situation that you're getting into with the Houthi rebels is, let me give you their actual stated slogan, Okay. This is what they publicly put out there as as their their slogan. God is great, death to the U.S., death to Israel, curse the Jews, and victory for Islam. Okay, Uh, that's the slogan. Now, that's still the slogan they evidently are rolling with because they've been uh, interviewed – And people have talked to them, and they've even tried to walk this back. There was a – I believe it was with a a BBC reporter where they said, uh, well, you know, that is the slogan, but it it doesn't actually – we don't mean that literally. We mean that figuratively. We want death not to everyone in the U.S., but specifically to U.S. policies that are – manipulating our country. And we, we don't want death to Israel. We just we just want the policies that affect us to be taken care of and, and so on and so forth. And I'm going, yeah, that's a pretty weak fucking defense, man. Uh, I don't know that I buy that. It kind of sounds like bullshit. It sounds like you're just making something up to not sound <laughs> like you're totally evil, which in and of itself kind of sounds totally evil, but just not very competent evil. So yeah. This is the level of political discourse that we can expect in any kind of interactions with the Houthi. But here we are. The Houthi have taken over the government. The uh, presidential government that existed in Yemen at the time makes a retreat to Saudi Arabia and sets up basically a government in exile. And civil war ensues. Saudi Arabia, not terribly surprising, decides that they are not on board with this. And the reason is because they don't want to see This strategic strong point and and this nation fall under Iranian control or an Iranian sphere of influence. So Saudi Arabia, with the U.S. helping them, and by helping them, I mean providing military intelligence, and uh, we sell a lot of weapons to Saudi Arabia, a lot of munitions. Uh, Saudi Arabia launches military operations against the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Now, this in and of itself has not gone terribly well. Uh, the Saudis tend to just attack whatever the hell they want to attack there. Civilian targets, military targets doesn't really seem to matter. So they're a bit liberal with their uh, their their uh, fighting, and that's caused a lot of backlash. The Houthi rebels, on the other hand, are getting more and more sophisticated weapons and have started striking targets with ballistic missiles in Saudi Arabia. And so the situation kind of just seems to keep escalating and escalating and escalating. Needless to say... By 2015, with active military operations, guess what stops functioning? The Houthi rebels control a large chunk of the country, but the, pre- the presidential government uh, still controls a little bit of it, but nobody really has control over the finances. Nobody has any real control over, over governmental operations, and so chaos is effectively reigning. And on top of that, the Houthis control the section of the coast where the Safirs docked. By 2016, uh, the SAFR was basically declared uninsured because nobody was paying the insurance premiums. And the skeleton crew on board had gone from 50 people to 7 people who just couldn't get off the boat and are now dubious as to whether or not they're even getting paid by anybody since while the Yemeni oil company exists, it's kind of completely stopped operations because there's absolute chaos across the country. And so now you've got the ship with 1.1 million barrels of oil on it, sitting there with seven people on board trying desperately to keep the thing running uh, while civil war rages on across the country. And to make matters worse, the civil war is not even a two-party civil war. It's not just the Houthi rebels and the government in exile. It's also three other parties. Let's talk about that for a second. So first, you have the Houthi rebels who control a large chunk of the country including the coastline around the Safir. Okay. Then you've got the government in exile backed by the Saudis and tacitly the United States trying to reestablish the presidential government over the whole of Yemen. Then you've got the Southern Transitional Council, which is backed by the United Arab Emirates. And what these guys want is to actually just go back to the old ways and just break the southern part of the country off and recreate South Yemen and say, you know what, The Houthis are mostly in the north. That's your problem. Fucking deal with it. We're going to be our own independent country again. Best of luck to you. So that's the Southern Transitional Council's position. Needless to say, the Houthis want the whole country, and the government exile wants the whole country, so they're not really happy with this Transitional Council situation. But wait, there's more. Who else could possibly be interested in having a chunk of Yemen for themselves? Well, if you guessed Al-Qaeda— You'd be correct. So Al-Qaeda founded, and this is actually their terminology. This is actually their terminology. They founded a new branch in the early 2000s called the Al-Qaeda Arabian Peninsula. And yes, they referred to it in a lot of their literature as a branch, like it's a fucking bank or something. So... Al-Qaeda Arabian Peninsula was initially predominantly based in Saudi Arabia. However, the Saudis have been very aggressively hunting down Al-Qaeda branches and taking them out, which has caused the Al-Qaeda Arabian Peninsula branch to try and get the hell out of Dodge. And lo and behold, seeing a massive civil war in Yemen, they see an opportunity to move in there, establish their own base of operations where they're not likely to be hassled by too many people. And so, yeah, Al-Qaeda has now set up shop in the neighborhood and is trying to sort of carve out their own, their own region for operations. And lastly is ISIS, or the Islamic State, or the Islamic State of the Levant or whatever the hell it is they're calling themselves these days. Um, uh, yeah. ISIS has also popped up in Yemen, taken some territory, and declared that the whole of Yemen is part of their global caliphate, and they're going to have a bit of that too. So you've got, count them, five different armed factions fighting to control a a country that is like the size of South Carolina. Like, it's not a big country. Uh, And a lot of these are not real good people. I mean, anywhere where you've got ISIS and al-Qaeda and then some other folks fighting over some territory, not a good situation. So Yemen is in complete chaos at this point. Now that we've established that, <clears throat> now everybody has acknowledged that this tanker situation is a problem. But the question is, what's to be done? So the Houthis have made it very clear that if anybody tries to come and get to the 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 sapphire, they're going to open fire on them and/or the tanker and blow everybody straight just straight to hell. Uh, The reason is the Houthis want the oil in the tanker so that they can sell it and have that money to fund their operations. So of course they do. After all, they spent years literally bitching that uh, oil companies had been pillaging their nation and, and all of this, and now they want to sell oil to make the money to carry on their war machine. I mean, the irony is really something. At any rate, They don't want anybody going there because they want to make sure that they keep a hold of the oil. They want the ship repaired, but they don't have the technical means to repair the ship. And at this point, the ship is in such bad shape that it's not even repairable. They just have to get the crude off of it and hope that there's not a massive accident in the meantime. In 2020, there was, in fact, a massive water leak in the engine room. A pipe just corroded through from sitting in salt water for eight years without any maintenance and started flooding the ship. Uh, This five- to seven-person crew on board worked for literally days and finally managed to stabilize the situation enough to affect temporary repairs and keeping the ship from sinking. But the Houthis have not allowed anybody else to go out there and to try and stabilize it or do anything. They just want to sit there until they can get the oil, but they don't have the means to do it, nor do they have the money to keep this boat maintained. And keep in mind, maintaining this, this ship, the Saffir, is not a cheap prospect. When the government was actually functioning, it was $8 million a year in maintenance to keep this thing afloat and in good order. Let's face it, they've got a five-way civil war. Nobody has $8 million floating around to deal with the situation. And by the way, funnily enough, in two years, you would have spent as much in maintenance on this thing as there is oil actually stuck on it. But there we are. So... The Saudis, on the other hand, do not want Yemen to get the oil. They don't want them to have the money from this because that's going to continue to fund their war machine and make this conflict drag out even longer. And by default, the U.S. doesn't necessarily want that. Um, And so we've got this sort of standoff between parties that are going, well, we really need to get that out of there, but they won't let us take it out because they want the oil. But we don't want them to have the oil and back and forth and back and forth. The UN, meanwhile, was asked to do something about this, but they didn't have the—and I'm not joking—they didn't have the money in the budget to address this issue, so the UN literally had to crowdsource a fund to raise 75 to $85 million in order to effect an operation to solve this problem. And that solution is to get a tanker, go out there, uh— pipe out some of the the bad gases that are building up, pump in the inert gases, move all the oil to another tanker. That tanker will then do something, which no one has an answer to yet. Will they sit there in the same place in a war zone and wait for the situation to sort itself out? Will they go to another port and wait? Will they just sell the oil for themselves? Who the hell knows? But you have to get off onto this tanker, and then you have to haul this giant rusted Hulk, after you've cleaned out the interior, to a scrapyard somewhere to be scrapped. Um, They've got the money for this at this point, but they've struggled to get the Houthis to allow this to happen and guarantee that they will not just kill them if they show up to start working on this. Now, you might be thinking, okay, how big a deal is this really? And that is our next question. Well, the problem is there's a lot of crude on this thing. And as it currently sits, uh, the worst-case scenario says – that if this thing actually cracks open and leaks, it will put out, just by math of what's on there now, more than four times the oil that was in the Exxon Valdez spill in 1989. So that's a problem. The other problem is that geographically where they're at has a lot of ramifications. Keep in mind that this ship is moored near the mouth of the Red Sea. If they crack open and dump a million barrels of oil at the mouth of the Red Sea, for weeks to months, you're going to have to shut that straight down while the situation gets cleaned up. And I don't know if you're looking at the globe lately, but the entrance to the Red Sea is kind of important because it's at the south end and at the north end of the Red Sea is the Suez Canal, which is one of the busiest, most important shipping lanes on planet Earth. You guys might recall a couple of years ago, as last year, year before maybe, uh, for about a week the Suez Canal was shut down because some idiot jackknifed their boat in the uh, in the canal and just completely clogged it up and they couldn't get the ship out and there were huge huge consequences i mean stuff all across the globe was getting backed up there were shipping overcharges stuff was getting lost stuff was getting bottlenecked it was a big hairy deal it was all over the news that was one week of the suez canal being down imagine it being down for up to 3 months while they try and clean up this oil spill if it happens that's a huge economic impact Globally, okay? So that's a problem. The other thing to keep in mind is it would be a massive ecological disaster. I mean, you're talking about four times uh, four times the volume of the Exxon Valdez uh, getting dumped in places where there's fisheries and and a lot of really great coral reefs and mangrove forests and all the sort of stuff on the coast that are really, you know important ecological things. And let's be honest, It'd be really terrible if this stupid of a situation fucked up one of the few nice things in that neighborhood right now, right? So that would be no good, to say the least. But then you also have to factor in that there is a humanitarian aspect of it. Yemen has a, an economy that's totally collapsed and a government that's virtually non-functional. They've already had a huge problem with famine. There's been an estimated 85,000 people that have died from famine since the Civil War started. Right now, one of the few things bringing in food to that country is the coastal fishing industry. And if this thing cracks open five miles off the coast, it's going to wreck the entire coastline or the vast majority of the coastline of Yemen and basically kill that entire industry and very likely cause some massive famine in Yemen. But wait, there's more. If this thing cracks open and spills its oil, you have to keep in mind this is the mouth of the Red Sea. There are several nations, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Djibouti, Oman, several others, whose water comes from the Red Sea. They get their drinking water by desalinizing the seawater and making drinking water. The problem is if that water is just completely tanked over with oil, it's going to cause a massive problem with with there not being enough drinking water for the people. The current estimates put it at about 8 million people will be impacted by this uh, and not have drinking water. So you're talking about some really gargantuan ecological, economical, and humanitarian problems. And what's shocking about this is it's one of the most preventable things that could happen. Yes, the Houthis want their money from the oil. Yes, they want to control that so they can fund their little civil war. But at the end of the day, they're literally gambling gambling with the lives of not just their people, but a whole lot of other people in the region just so they can have this little this little bluffing game with Saudi Arabia and the U.S. to figure out if they can make $80 million off this oil. I mean, that's just insane to me. Um and and the ramifications for this are so wildly serious on so many different levels. I mean, this is one thing that Greenpeace is right about. There's a lot at stake with this situation, and it is immensely solvable if some people would just pull their heads out of their asses. So, all that being said, where do we go from here? Well... The UN's managed to crowdsource the money as of September of last year in order to perform the cleanup. They supposedly have a memorandum of understanding with the Houthis that will authorize them to bring in another tanker, do the cleaning, do the transfer. The other tanker has to supposedly stay in that neighborhood for the time being because they, by God, want their oil. And um, that will at least put it onto a seaworthy and safe ship. Now, here's the question that I have. Who's going to maintain ship number two? the the Houthi government, such as it is, can't afford to do that. Oil tankers are not exactly what you call cheap. And so how is that plan going to work long term? Yes, it will put the oil into a container that's not as likely to cause a massive ecological disaster today. But if this isn't resolved in a timely fashion, you're in the exact same boat. We just bought ourselves another decade. All right. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is, that there are some complications with getting a tanker that big. Right now, oil tankers are not cheap on the open market, and the prices have gone up from the point in time which they initially crowdsourced the funding to now. Uh, The UN says that they are working on it, they have commitments from people to provide the extra money, and they believe in the next couple of months they will start working on this. But this has already taken eight years to solve, and The ramifications of fucking this up are so incredibly massive that it's truly amazing to me that as a planet, we have not come together and said, okay, this is a real easy fix. We're just going to deal with it. And yes, I understand the military and economic complications that go behind this, but if it goes bad, it goes real bad and it's expensive for a lot of people in both money and human lives, and that ain't good. But to circle this all back around to Greenpeace blaming the oil and gas industry, let's be clear about something here. They're blaming all these oil and gas companies for being responsible, saying we should be footing the bill. And you know what? To a point, yeah, all of these super major companies should have donated money to try and fund this thing. Absolutely. Not because they're responsible for it, but just because it's the obviously smart thing to do economically, right? They all have a lot of shipping going out of the Red Sea, and if the Red Sea shuts down, it's going to cost them a lot more than a couple million that they chip in to help pay for fixing this mess. And regardless of whether or not they pay for it, it doesn't change the fact that the United States, or more importantly, the UN, who's been running point on this, has done a pretty piss-poor job of actually orchestrating a successful cleanup, since it's still not cleaned up still not solved. We still could have a massive ecological disaster regardless of all this if people don't get off their duffers and move in a more expeditious fashion. But at the end of the day, blaming oil and gas industries, uh, who one, did not own the SAFR, right? That was owned – by the actual nation state of Yemen. It was owned by the Yemen oil and gas company, which is a nationalized oil and gas company. That is a state apparatus. This was owned by the government of Yemen. And yeah, I get it. You wanna point the finger and blame somebody. You want somebody to be the bad guy on this. I, I get it, that's fair. But at the end of the day, there's not an easy finger to point at this. Yeah, the Yemenese government should have sorted this out they shouldn't have let this happen. But also, they're having a five-way civil war with ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and a whole bunch of other folks. It's just a thing that happened. There's nothing you can do about that. The only thing we, as planet Earth, can do is collectively say, well, y'all will have to figure that out. We're going to at least take care of this one thing. But at the end of the day, here's the thing. To my mind, Blaming the oil and gas industries of the U.S. and and all of that for this situation is asinine, right? Yeah, at one point in time historically, a U.S. company did own the Safin. It's also not contested that it is now owned by a nationalized oil company of Yemen. Okay, so it's the thing that's about to break that caused all these problems is not actually – owned or maintained or under the direct responsibility of any of these companies that you're calling out Greenpeace for being responsible for this their whole point of blame here is by saying well you guys benefited from this you at some point in time had oil that went through this transfer station and because you used this transfer station and now it's it's going to be a problem this is your fault and that's just bullshit when you get right down to it that's kind of like If you, the listener, ordered something off Amazon, and as the Amazon driver was on his way uh, to your house to drop off this thing you ordered, along with everybody else's shit, right? If he's on his way to your house and he hits my car, that would be like me suing you, the person that ordered the thing off Amazon, rather than going after Amazon itself. You didn't own the van, You didn't pay for the driver. You didn't control any of that. How on earth would you be liable for the driver's incompetence? And I know it's not a satisfying answer to Greenpeace to say, yeah, the people that are responsible for this lost their country and it's all gone completely uh, sideways. But guess what? That's the situation. That's what it is. So rather than trying to point fingers at the oil and gas industry, why don't we just talk about raising the money and solving this problem before it's an even bigger problem for literally everybody. That's what I have for tonight. That's, in fact, all I have for tonight. And so now that we've run the clock out, it's time to call it a day. This is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I did not start the fire. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to oggn.